Chapter 13, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Seoul as a Battlefield On the morning of 25 September 1950, with RCT-1 across the river, the 1st Marine Division was in a position for the first time since D-Day to launch an attack of all three regiments abreast. This was but one of the portents indicating that the days of the North Korean People's Army were numbered. Exactly three months had passed since the invasion of the Republic of Korea, and now the forces of the Communist puppet state were reeling under blows from two directions. While 10 Corps pounded inland to seize the NKPA main communications hub, the 8th Army had smashed through the Pusan perimeter and was driving northward to place the enemy between two fires. The big break in South Korea came on 23 September. Up to that time, the NKPA 5th, 8th, 12th, and 15th Divisions had put up a stubborn resistance on the northern front of the Pusan perimeter against six rock divisions. Then the enemy crumpled and the rocks began an advance that would take them 70 miles during the ensuing week. It was much the same story along the kumchon taejon axis of the Central Front. There the U.S. 1 Corps, comprising the U.S. 24th Infantry and 1st Cavalry Divisions, the 1st Rock Division, and the British 27th Brigade, drove a deep salient into the line of the 1st, 3rd, 13th, 10th, and 2nd NKPA divisions. UN gains of 35 miles were made from the 22nd to the 25th. In the south, the U.S. 2nd and 25th divisions had hurled the NKPA 6th, 4th, 9th, and 7th divisions back from the vicinity of Masan to the Chinju area. The gain of about 15 miles from 21 to 23 September was only a prelude as the two U.S. divisions pressed their advantage against a retreating enemy. The ultimate purpose of the Joint 8th Army and 10 Corps offensive must already have been made alarmingly apparent to NKPA generals. Not only was the 8th Army salient along the kumchon taejon axis being extended northwest, but a 10 Corps regiment was driving southeast toward a junction. This was the 31st Infantry of the 7th Infantry Division, which had been given the mission of following in the trace of the 32nd, then wheeling southward toward the Suwon area to meet the elements of the 1st Cavalry Division spearheading the 8th Army advance. Thus was the drawstring being rapidly pulled on the remnants of the invading NKPA Army, soon to have its main routes of escape cut off by UN forces. Two More River Crossings after nearly a week of commanding a division in combat on both sides of an unbridged tidal river, General Smith and Craig now had a consolidated front north of the Han, with RCT-1 on the right, RCT-5 in the center, and RCT-7 on the left. The 11th Marines was in position on the south bank. The 1st, 3rd, and 4th Battalions lined up northwest of Yongdungpo, while the 2nd Battalion and the U.S. Army 96th Field Artillery emplaced to the east of that shattered suburb. Two more river crossings took place on 25 September. 
First, the 32nd Infantry of the 7th Infantry Division moved to the North Bank in accordance with the Revised Corps plan. The Marine 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion, Less Company B, and the Army's Company A, 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion, had to make a 25-mile round trip that night to bring the troops to an embarkation point about 5,000 yards east of the railroad bridge at Yongdungpo. Scattered enemy small arms and artillery fire was received during the crossing, resulting in a few casualties among crews and soldiers. The LVTs took the troops about 200 yards inland, where they advanced on foot to their objectives on South Mountain without encountering any opposition other than long-range harassing fires. Later that same day, the 17th Rock Regiment, under the control of the 7th Infantry Division, crossed in the LVTs. It was hoped by United Nations leaders that this unit, known as the Seoul Regiment, could take part in the liberation of the Rock Capital. Apparently the second river crossing of the day alarmed the enemy, for it drew mortar and artillery fire in greater volume and accuracy than had been encountered before. The support given to the two crossings by the 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion was commended by General Barr in a letter to General Smith. Despite long hours, loss of sleep, maintenance difficulties, and exposure to fire, said the commanding general of the 7th Infantry Division, the personnel of your battalion performed so magnificently that I have nothing but praise to offer. If at any time in the future elements of this division are called upon to cross a river, it is my sincere wish that they may be supported by the 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion. From South Mountain, the troops of the 32nd Infantry looked down upon the city. They could not enter as yet because of the danger of interfering with the fires of the 1st and 5th Marines. But the 32nd and the Rock Unit were assigned a zone of action by Corps for an advance on the right of the Marines when the time came for a concerted effort. Division Attack of 25 September At 0700 on the 25th, the 1st Marine Division launched the final phase of its attack on Seoul. The following objectives were assigned by Division Operation Order 11-50. RCT-1, with the 2nd KMC Battalion attached, was to seize the part of Seoul within its zone of action and objective ABLE, consisting of the high ground beyond the northeastern outskirts and about six miles from the jump-off positions. The zone of action, ranging from a mile to a mile and a half wide, carried the attack through the heart of the city, with South Mountain on the right and Duck Sioux Palace on the left. Mopping up operations were assigned to the KMCs, who would revert to their own regimental control afterwards. RCT-5, with the Division Reconnaissance Company and 1st KMC Battalion attached, was to seize that part of Seoul within its zone of action and objective Baker, comprising the high ground overlooking the Seoul-Wijambu Road six miles from the line of departure. About a mile and a half wide, this zone included the northwest section of the city and the government palace, though the regiment would be operating in open country after an advance of about two miles. The KMCs were to be used for mopping up after RCT-5. RCT-7 had the mission of protecting the left flank of the division and seizing Objective Charlie, the high ground astride the seoul Kaesong Road about six miles northwest of the center of Seoul in the vicinity of Chungsong-ni. The KMC regiment, less the 1st and 2nd battalions, was designated the division reserve. 
It was to be prepared to resume control of detached battalions and occupy Seoul. The 3rd Battalion, 187th Airborne RCT, with Special Operations Company attached, was to continue under operational control of the 1st Marine Division and protect the Corps' left flank west and south of the Han River. Following the artillery and air preparation, 3-5 and 2-5 jumped off abreast from left to right in an attack on the remaining defenses of the Hill 296 complex. Royce's objective was Hill 105N. He was to be supported by fires from Taplet's men, attacking down the slopes of Hill 296 in an advance that would eventually pinch out the 2nd Battalion, which would go into reserve. The 1st Battalion had completed its relief of 3rd Battalion elements on Hills 216 and 296, thus placing it in position to move up on the left of the 3rd. During the airstrikes, VMF 214 had its 2nd pilot fatality in two days, when Lieutenant Colonel Lisheed was shot down in flames over the western edge of the city. His death brought to light a curious train of circumstances. It was recalled that the squadron had lost its first pilot on D plus 2 when enemy fire killed Captain Simpson in plane number 17. Two days later, while inspecting the new number 17 on the flight deck of the Sicily, Technical Sergeant George C. Underwood received a mortal wound from an accidental discharge of the guns. Major Robert Fleck was flying this Corsair when he met his death on 23 September, but the machine was saved. And it was in plane number 17 that the squadron commander crashed on the 25th. This was enough for Captain John H. Thack of the Sicily, and he issued an order banning the number forever on the carrier. Within two hours of Lisheed's death, two other squadron commanders were shot down. Lieutenant Colonel Wachowski of VMF-212 and Lieutenant Colonel Vulkansek of VMF-N-542. Both escaped with moderate injuries, but in the space of a few minutes, Vulkansek had pressed his luck within a hair's breadth of the point of no return. Wounded, his plane badly damaged by enemy fire from Seoul, the squadron commander stubbornly led his flight in two more passes on red positions. Approaching Kimpo, he was forced to keep the battered F7F3N at almost 200 knots, twice the landing speed, to prevent it stalling. There was no alternative but to bail out. When he jettisoned the canopy, his altimeter needle wavered around the 1,000-foot mark. Slipstreams from the two engines pinned him to the cockpit as the plane continued losing altitude. In desperation, he kicked violently at the stick with both feet. The aircraft lurched downward and Vulkansek was thrown clear, the big tail of the machine missing him by inches as both plummeted earthward. A few seconds after the officer's chute opened and broke the fall, his feet touched earth a few miles northwest of Kimpo. Within 45 minutes, he was aboard a helicopter rattling back to the airfield. It was the last day for the Sicily and VMF-214 in the Incheon Seoul operation. That evening, the CVE left the area for maintenance work, and the Badong Strait took over with VMF-323. Easy Company led the attack of 2-5 on the 25th, with Dog on the left and Fox in reserve. The advance was supported by a platoon of tanks as well as fires from 3-5 on Hill 296. An effective artillery preparation aided the advance, 
but Captain Jaskilka's men were enfiladed by enemy mortar and automatic fire from Hill 72. Lieutenant Deptula's platoon led the assault and seized his position by 1335 after suffering heavily along the way. Lieutenant Seidel commanded the remnants of Dog Company, which jumped off from Smith's Ridge and took Hill 88 at 1320. While Fox Company moved up to occupy Hill 72, an airstrike was called on Hill 105N at 1310, and the artillery bombardment began 15 minutes later in preparation for the final assault by Easy Company. Second Lieutenants James W. Epley and Samuel L. Eddy Jr. led the advance with their platoons, and Hill 105N was reported as secured at 1545. The 2nd Battalion, with the exception of Deptula's platoon, had met moderate opposition as compared with the last two days. It was in the zone of the 3rd that the enemy put up his most stubborn resistance on 25 September. George and Howe companies, the latter on the exposed left flank, led the attack on the remaining NKPA positions along the two southeastern spurs of Hill 296. Initial progress was slow, the attackers being harassed by long-range fires from Hill 338 on the left and 105N on the right. Lieutenant Colonel Murray directed the battalion to hold up until the situation around 105N clarified. Resuming the attack against mounting resistance on the left, at 1435, the two companies reached their objectives two hours later and made contact with 25 on the right. Since 105N capped the terminus of the lower of 35's two spurs, the whole length of the 1,000-yard projection was tagged with that number. This fact accounts for both Royce and Taplitz reporting that they were in possession of the height. Actually, 25 was on 105N, and George Company of 35 held an unnumbered peak to the north on the same ridge. Company H, in moving down the huge spur on the open left flank, had taken heavy casualties before reaching its objective, an intermediate peak. Just as Item Company was passing through to continue the attack at about 1700, the Marines were hit hard by a force of 200 Reds, who advanced under cover of accurate supporting fire. The close-in firefight raged until after nightfall, and both depleted companies were hard-pressed to hold their own. Weakened by the loss of 100 dead, the enemy finally withdrew, thereby allowing Item Company to take over the front line while Howe reverted to battalion reserve. Thus, the 3rd Battalion was now in position to pinch out the 2nd on the morrow and to trace Item Company's spur into the very heart of Seoul. In preparation for the assault of Hill 338, Newton's 1st Battalion had shifted to the regimental left, where, with the Division Recon Company and the 1st KMC Battalion, it blocked the precipitous approaches to 216 and 296. In the zone of the 7th Marines, the 2nd Battalion had jumped off at 0630 and occupied Objective Charlie at 1215 without meeting resistance. Patrols of the 1st Battalion devoted the day to reconnoitering the area between RCT-7 and RCT-5, maintaining contact with both. The 3rd Battalion was employed defensively along roads and trails in an arc around the ferry crossing site at Huangju. Tank victory on Hill 105S. In preparation for the attack of the 1st Marines, the 3rd Battalion moved forward before daybreak in a column of companies. Passing eastward through the 2nd Battalion, 
Ridge's men began a sharp wheel to the north. The 1st Battalion, on Hill 79, withdrew slightly, pivoting on its left flank in order to reorient its direction of attack and tie in with the 3rd Battalion on the left. Thus did RCT-1 carry out the core plan of maneuver on the morning of the 25th by making a 90-degree change of direction after advancing eastward to Hill 79 and driving straight northward toward the heart of Seoul. It was necessary to jump off without tank support, however, since the assigned armor had been delayed by a fight on the way. The 2nd and 3rd platoons of Captain Bruce F. Williams' Baker Company, 1st Tank Battalion, had crossed the river at the Huangju Ferry on the 24th. Reports of enemy mines along the railroad leading into Seoul cost Lieutenant Babe's 2nd platoon of Company C engineers to be attached to the tanks. And since the column was to pass through the zone of the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, a depleted infantry platoon of Company F was attached under the command of Staff Sergeant Arthur Farrington. Owing to the shift of 1-5, a gap existed at this time between the zones of the 1st and 5th Marines, and the little task force entered this area with the infantry at the point and the engineers sandwiched between the tanks, a total of some 50 men supporting the armor. About half of the gap between the regiments had been safely traversed when the head of the column received a few scattered shots from the slope of Hill 105S. After being supposedly secured by 1-5, with a final mopping up by 3-1, this troublesome position now erupted into enemy small arms fire that could only have come from at least a company-sized pocket of resistance. Lieutenant Babe was severely wounded before he could carry out his plan of sending Farrington's platoon around to envelop the left flank of the NKPA troops entrenched on the slope. After Technical Sergeant Pasquale Paolino took command of the engineers, his men and the infantry platoon were so badly outnumbered that Captain Williams considered pulling them inside the tanks and withdrawing. Then it occurred to him to send a flamethrower tank, escorted by Staff Sergeant Altair's M26, around the enemy's left flank by way of a primitive trail leading southward from the railway tracks. This maneuver had a spectacular success. The flame tank moved into a position enabling it to sear the length of the NKPA trenches with bursts of napalm. When the terrified Red Koreans fled down the slope, they became targets for the machine guns of Lieutenant Cummings' platoon of tanks. Sergeants Paolino and Farrington had meanwhile been organizing an infantry and engineer base of small arms fire from men taking cover along the railroad embankment and the lower slopes of the hill. The engineer NCO noticed that enemy grenades were being lobbed from three thatched huts below the NKPA trenches on the left flank. Closer inspection revealed the mouth of a cave, concealed by the third house and extending back into Hill 105S. Paolino, after getting Williams' permission to direct tank fire, banged on the hull of Cummings' M26 and indicated the huts and mouth of the cave as targets. A few 90mm rounds destroyed the huts, but before Cummings could fire into the cave, 8 or 10 NKPA soldiers came out with upraised hands. When they were allowed to surrender unharmed, the example had an amazing effect as a seemingly endless file of enemy troops poured out of the cave. Altogether, 131 prisoners were taken, in addition to an estimated 150 killed, on a hill first reported secured two days before. 
Apparently, the undiscovered cave had provided a refuge for nearly 300 Red Koreans. Among the captives, as the Marines discovered later, were two women in uniform who had evidently been armed. Because of the NKPA reputation for treachery, it was considered necessary to search them, but they were treated with respect and provided with garments more appropriate to their sex. In spite of the consideration shown them, the incident resulted in sensational articles in stateside publications after the women reached the rear and claimed mistreatment on the grounds that they were nurses. Two wounded engineers and an infantry casualty were the price of the Marine's success after a surprise encounter had been turned to the disadvantage of the enemy. Since the NKPA prisoners were more than double the numbers of the engineers and infantry, they were placed between two M26s when the column resumed the march. It was 1200 when Cummings reported to Colonel Puller at the intersection of the railroad and a boulevard with streetcar tracks leading into the heart of the city. The tanks took the lead, joining 3-1 in its fighting advance up both sides of the north-south boulevard. Enemy mines knocked out two of the M26s, one of them being Cummings' tank, but both were retrieved in spite of heavy NKPA fire. Successive roadblocks consisting of earth-filled rice bags were stubbornly defended by enemy infantry supported by NKPA automatic, AT, and mortar fire from the rooftops. The Marines pressed forward methodically, and by evening the 3rd Battalion had penetrated about 2,000 yards into the city to occupy positions astride the streetcar line and on the western slopes of Hill 97. The 1st Battalion, on the high ground to the right, had advanced about 2,000 yards when both assault units tied in for the night with defensive positions on Hill 82. The 2nd Battalion, as regimental reserve, deployed in the rear of the 1st to protect the right flank and rear. Night Attack Ordered by Corps The battle for Seoul took a sudden and unexpected new turn at 2009 on the night of 25 September 1950 when the following 10 Corps flash plane message was received at the CP of the 1st Marine Division. Info addressee, 10 Corps TAC Air Commander, reports enemy fleeing city of Seoul on road north of Wigjambu. He, TAC Air, is conducting heavy air attack and will continue the same. You will push attack now to the limit of your objectives in order to ensure maximum destruction of enemy forces. Signed, Almond. The Division G3 immediately called the Accord G3 for corroboration. Colonel Bowser questioned the ability of night air observation to determine whether the movement out of the city consisted of urban refugees or enemy troops. He was informed, however, that the intention of Corps was for the attack to begin at once. General Smith then called the 10 Corps Chief of Staff for confirmation pointing out the inadvisability of attacking at night in an unfamiliar oriental city of the size and complexity of Seoul, particularly as there was no indication of the enemy fleeing from the division front. But General Ruffner replied that General Almond himself had dictated the message and it was to be executed without delay. General Smith gave the attack order to the commanding officers of the 1st and 5th Marines, directing them to coordinate their efforts and confine them to avenues of advance which could be identified at night. His order was receded by the 1st Marines at 2205 
and the 5th Marines at 22.15, just a few hours after the NKPA counterattack hit the 3rd Battalion of Murray's Regiment. While the two rifle regiments made preparations to jump off, the order was relayed to the 7th and 11th Marines. Colonel Polar coordinated hastily with the 5th Marines and supporting arms for an attack scheduled to begin at 0145 on 26 September, following a 15-minute artillery preparation. At 0138, deciding that the preparation was inadequate, he notified the assault battalions to stand fast, preparatory fires to be repeated. A new jump-off time of 0200 was set, but at 0153, a dramatic interruption came in the form of a flash message from 3rd Battalion of the 1st Marines. Lieutenant Colonel Ridge reported that a heavy enemy attack, supported by tanks and self-propelled guns, was moving down the main avenue leading from the center of the city to the southwest in the zone of the 1st Marines. It was the enemy's misfortune that 3-1 had sent out a patrol of eight Marines and three natives under Corporal Charles E. Collins to make contact with a similar patrol from the 5th Marines. But at 0130, the clamor of a firefight about 400 yards in front of 3-1 was followed by the return of members of the patrol who gave the alarm. Corporal Collins was still missing when Major Simmons heard the sound of tracked vehicles and was warned that two enemy tanks were approaching the George Company roadblock defended by heavy machine guns, 3.5-inch rocket launchers, and 75mm recoilless guns. These weapons accounted for the destruction of one enemy tank and the hasty retreat of the other. The division attack scheduled for 0200 was indefinitely postponed, of course, until 3-1, astride the principal avenue of approach, could deal with a large-scale enemy counterattack launched by an estimated battalion of infantry and about 12 tanks supported by self-propelled guns and mortars. A terrific concentration of Marine artillery was called down upon an NKPA effort that reached its peak about 0230. High-angle Marine howitzer and 81mm mortar fire almost literally blasted the attacking column out of existence, and enemy infantry action was negligible afterwards. At 0315, the artillery liaison officer informed Puller that the three battalions of the 11th Marines must cease barrage fire at the penalty of burning out the tubes of their howitzers. During the comparative lull, the T-34s continued to attack at intervals until daybreak, and the last two tanks were killed at 0630. About that time, Corporal Collins returned safely after having been given up as dead. Exposed to friendly as well as enemy fire all night, he had made his way back through enemy-held areas in a disguise of Korean civilian garments. POW interrogation and examination of the ground revealed that seven enemy tanks and two self-propelled guns were destroyed or disabled by marine mines, rockets, mortars, or artillery. An estimated 475 to 500 infantry of the NKPA 25th Brigade had been killed and many more wounded, and the Marines took 83 prisoners at a relatively light cost in casualties. At 0500, as 3-1's fight in the city was tapering off, another red force of battalion strength hit the 2nd Battalion, 32nd Infantry, on South Mountain. A section of the Army's unit's front was overrun, but a counterattack restored the line by 0700. Finally driven from the ridge, the North Koreans left behind 394 dead 
and 174 prisoners, according to the regimental report. End of chapter 13, part 1, read by Aaron Bennett.